Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. You can listen on your favorite app or at jodystevens.org. Genuine Life Recovery is made possible by great friends like Joshua's Heart in memory of Joshua Brent Moore, bringing hope, love, and awareness to those afflicted by addiction online at joshesheart.org and Jody Stevens Productions for commercial voiceover, narration, production, MC, and public speaking online at jodystevens.org. Hey friends, welcome back to Genuine Life Recovery. Today we're talking about a lot of stuff, childhood trauma, being the child of a narcissist, if David's willing to go there, uh, and how it all connects to addiction and recovery. And he's gonna tell us pieces of his amazing story. It's David Zaylor. Did I say your name yes, right? Thank you, Jody. You did. Okay, and I just asked you how to say it, and then I asked you again. <laughs> but, um, David's written several books, including The Death of a Fisherman, which was a fantastic read and just a great, um, kind of like a memoir of your story. And I really enjoyed that. He's written several more books, Licensed Addiction Counselor, has worked in addiction and recovery and helps train people and uh, in ministry and as well as uh, recovery. So David, lots of great stuff that you have done. And I just wanna thank you for being willing to come on be vulnerable, share your story. Well, thanks, Jody. I, I so appreciate your work. And uh, um, I know that you and your, both you and your husband have done an awful lot for a lot of people very quietly. Um, and so this more, I know that this kind of public side of you is, is just kind of one window to great depth <laughs> of your work. And uh, so I'm just, I'm glad to sit down with you and have a chat and uh, hopefully we can share some love and hope today. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Well, as I read your book, David, you know, there was a lot of trauma and things that you experienced growing up and I want to get into that, but I want to briefly touch on just trauma and how it impacts individuals. Like, you know, so, so kind of in your own words and from your own perspective, how does trauma impact people, particularly you, from an early age through sort of as we get into adulthood and how that that makes us really just kind of view the world and people and trust levels differently. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I, I, th I spent, when, when people have grown up with trauma or have experienced it over time, so that it's not just, mm -hmm. you know, one or two events over the course of a lifetime, but if it's something that's like a daily drip feeding into the yeah. kind of the nutritional diet of the soul. I think children who grew up with that kind of thing grow up feeling like the world is, there's this big world that they kind of see from outside and they compare themselves with this world that they see as being better than themselves or different from themselves. Mm. And at a place that's perhaps secret to themselves, they will ask, well, gosh, what's wrong with me? While often at the same time living out ways uh, in these extraordinary, grandiose ways, trying to overcome that. Um, so, and that could be ways of, you know, this is where you have the hero child or the entertainer yeah. child, the overcomer child, the overachiever child. Um, also yeah. the problem, yeah. you know, I just recently read a clinical article where they're linking childhood trauma to adult attention deficit disorder. Wow, and, that's my problem. <laughs> well, as I, like, well, as I read this, it took me right back to the experience that I had as, as a kind of a young middle-aged adult when I, was, I, I came into recovery mm -hmm. at 40, about 25 years ago. 
And I realized that in my early recovery, how I had been struggling with being able to focus and stay on track with goals and in plans and that kind of thing. Yeah. And that was really, a rep it was really an, kind of an offset and uh, I would say a symptom of the fact that I was always walking around through life with this wounded way of thinking that had been with me since I was a child, uh, really from um, unhealed childhood trauma. Well, and it's interesting too, because you're, you're, you, you kind of get close to success and then a little bit of failure comes in, you're crushed, and then you go a different direction and then a different direction and then a different direction. And I found that to be very much the case with me where, and then, then by the time I got to my age, I'm all over, I do a hundred different things, but you know, it's like, okay, so let's pick one and just get there. But, but then what if, but then like, I would just want to avoid, um, trying to become successful because I was afraid I would be wounded and I didn't even want to face the wounding. So I just pivot in a different direction. <laughs> well, you know, I think so often people who've, who've struggled with such experiences, they, there's this, there's this quiet little voice that haunts them says, well, why try? Why even try? Yeah. Why give love a second chance? Why, um, why really work hard on my career when I got fired from the last job? Where mm. the failures that come along with life and no, no human being it, it gets through life without something that will be labeled or perceived as a failure. Um, yeah. But failure is not a branding of the value of the human being. Um, and that's where the shame piece and especially the secret keeping makes people think, well, geez, maybe these failures really are a representation of who I am. So at that point, why not drink? Why not do the drugs or why, if, if I could never be healthy or feel good about my body, why should I watch what I eat? Um, if I, if I can't be fulfilled in love, then why not look at the porn or, you know, live in fantasy? Um, mm -hmm. There's a, in a very sad, broken way, the things that we do addictively make sense. They make sense when seen through a lens of hopelessness and isolation and shame. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. And if, if, you know, for you and your brain, like when, when you were experienced the trauma, it sounds like you were seven or eight when it started. And so your brain's being wired that way. I mean, that's just how your neurons are firing and everything's firing to be on yes. alert, you know, and then you get older. And, and when you live in that chaos, it's not like someone told you to relax and, you know, try deep breathing and go for a walk. You know, so we get older, you've got no coping skills. And so that's what I tell people like when they relapse and stuff, it's like, you know, this is normal because this is, this is like, if you don't have any other skills, it's like, if I tell you, oh, David, just quit drinking. I mean, that's your lifeline. Like, that's the only thing that you feel like is keeping you alive. Um, and that's why, you know, the recovery piece, I think, is just so important is that you've got to retrain your brain. You know, and that's what all the therapeutic stuff is. It really takes time. And the more you have positive input, then you begin to change. But you have to be around those healthy people and see and see what that looks mm -hmm. like, you know. Well, and you, you just said it right there. Be around these people um, who can be an example and who can be guides into the recovery process. And, um, you know, I think... When it came to my destructive behaviors, which were alcohol, drugs, women, pornography, I think my first, uh, clinically speaking, my first addiction was certainly codependency. Codependence yep. to the family system, um, to, yep. you know, my father. Um, 
my father also had a very dark uh, pornography addiction. So as a boy, I w found his pornography and looked at it. And that was a link to my future addictiveness. Um, and I found, you know, as I, even before recovery, I had no, I could, I could stop drinking. I could stop looking at the pornography. I could stop, I could stop my bad habits. The problem that I had is that I didn't know how to stay stopped. And mm -hmm. recovery is yeah. not about stopping. It's about not starting again. Yeah. And yeah. back right. to your right. point, I was hopeless to stay stopped. So I never even really thought about staying stopped. For one, I was, yeah. when I didn't, without my little things like drinking and occasional drug use, I was just flat out miserable. Even though I had a yeah. good life, I had a good job, nice home, friends. But I didn't know how to see my future differently. That did not change until I got into a recovery setting where I was around people who had faced similar challenges who had similar areas of struggle with alcohol and drugs and, you know, misuse of sex and pornography and all these things. And as they, as they imparted to me what they had learned about their recovery experience, I began to recognize that, hey, these people are happy people. Yeah. They're well-adjusted. Yeah. Um, so if they can be happy and well-adjusted, so can I. And so at that point, I was like, well, what it, whatever it is that they're doing, I'm just going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Step one, do it. You know, take, take, the, take some suggestions. I love that. And I love the piece in your book where the, you're, you're um, talking to the counselor and you're <laughs> preaching to him. And he's like, that's a load of crap. You know, not that, not that God is a load of crap, but sort of your, your version of, of life was, was just with this, this sort of pretty filter. And, you know, it talks about anybody can recover if they have the capacity to be honest. And I think so many people lose their life because they just can't face the pain of the family mm -hmm. trauma or, you know, whatever it was, you know. Um, and so until we get honest and really look at, as they say, life on life's terms, it's it's pretty hard to to maintain that sobriety because, yeah, you're always going to be miserable and you're never really going to know why. But I want to get into your story. Um, I like to chat a little bit about things before I have people dive into their deep, dark past. You know, it's like... Is this where I'm but, supposed to start um, sweating? Some of the things... Oh yeah, yeah, let's here. warm this up a little bit, you know, like, hi, David's here. Tell me about the sexual abuse. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it takes a little bit of rolling it into. But um, some of the highlights, you know, you, your dad's like a narcissist and he's all up in the church. I mean, that's that's the first piece of trauma. My gosh, top, you know, so there's a lot of hypocrisy. There's abuse. It's happening in the church. I mean, so kind of take us back to some of those things that uh, were going on and then really how it, how it later led into those addictions. Okay. Kind of give us the, give us the 10, 10, 15 minute version, you know, okay. take your time too. Well, it was the sixties. Um, back in the 1960s, there was no, there was no discussion about these things. Yeah, there was yeah. no, information or education they didn't talk about it on you know the the network news or you Podcast. know none of that <laughs> and yeah. i was raised in a in a southern church in houston a good church um mm -hmm. deeply committed to helping people discover the gospel to know the love of jesus um and so, and I grew up in that tradition, which, you know, the kids go to Sunday school and, um, 
and you sit through the sermon and then you go to lunch afterwards and you go home and you do your best to be a good Christian. My father was a deeply revered and loved church musician. Back in the 60s and 70s, he would be the equivalent of one of our modern-day worship leader rock stars. So, mm-hmm. um, and he was not a bad guy, but he was, I think, deeply fractured within himself. Um, I don't think he knew what it meant to be loved. I don't think he knew what it meant to love. And I will tell you, I harbored deep anger towards him for years, and it took me years just to come to terms with how angry I was at him. Um, Once I came to terms with that, it just came out of me like, you know, this fire hose of emotion. And I began to deal with it. Years now into recovery, I realized that there's no need to turn the knife. There's no need to assault him. I can understand and feel bad for him. At the same time, he was um, a profound narcissist. He would feel bad for other people when it was a reflection of, a direct reflection of his own sadness. And he seemed to be blind to the reality that other human beings had their own experience and their own life that was independent of him. And I I grew up, um, and as you've alluded to, there were, I experienced childhood sexual trauma by one of my father's friends. There was three episodes. You know, episodes is a nice clinical way to say it. Three episodes. Yeah. The first one was at a church picnic. Neither of my parents were there. Um, I wanted to go as a little boy because I, as a little boy, I was fascinated with fishing. And at this picnic, there was going to be boats. It was going to be at a lake, and I could do some fishing. My father asked someone to take me, and this man uh, molested me. The same man, um, some months later, took me to a baseball game. It was a uh, uh, it was an Astros game in Houston, uh, and it was a night where the churches were invited to to break come and. Um, again, my father did not want to attend. My father had no interest in baseball. As a little boy, I loved baseball. So this man invited me or volunteered to take me and, well, happened again. At this point, I started to have some pretty nasty behavioral struggles, got in trouble in school, fighting with other boys, um, being disruptive in class. Uh, They sent me to doctors. Um, Doctors diagnosed me as mentally retarded. And I was put in a special school. The first year in the special school, I I think I was nine at that point. The third episode happened, the same man. And um, at that point, I just, I think I just kind of fractured. And I just kind of thought, okay, well, this is it. I'm, I look like every other kid, but I'm mentally retarded and they're not. And uh, so as the years went on, I struggled with education, dropped out of high school, um, got menial jobs working, you know, with my hands, working in warehouses and working in construction and that kind of thing. And I also began to drink. And once I discovered alcohol, I discovered that there were girls that drank alcohol. And, and, you know, as a young man in my 20s. Well, that was kind of a a dubious and wonderful discovery all at the same time. <laughs> and uh, then the yeah. drugs came on. And uh, drugs and alcohol were part of my life until I was 40 years old when I was arrested for a small amount of 
drugs, cocaine, and the court diverted me into treatment. And when I was in the treatment program, I began to, I realized that as confused as I was and as demorally, demoralized as I was, I had an opportunity here. And I remember thinking, well, if they can show me how not to be miserable, then I'm going to listen. Because I don't know what it means not to be miserable. And I just like to learn what it means not to be miserable. Mm -hmm. And... That's wow. where my recovery journey began. I'm so sorry that that happened to you as a child. And thank you so much for sharing that. I can't even imagine, you know, after I read your book, I just, for a couple of days, I was just like, how does, how does, how does a child process that they can't? How does someone involved in the church do something like that? I mean, you know, all that stuff just swimming around, but also thinking about just the the family dynamics of dysfunction, whether it's addiction or codependency, where there's just no real honesty. And I think that's the hardest thing, you know, and I saw that throughout your book where if you try to say something, no one's going to believe you. When you tried to confront your dad about his problems, he never spoke to you again. This is so common in families where there's abuse, narcissism, addiction, where, and that's where we get these roles and we start becoming different people because there's just absolutely no room for honesty and authenticity. And I don't really understand completely why that is, but I've seen that in my own family too, where it's just smoke and mirrors. You know, like my brother died from addiction and it was still just smoke and mirrors. You know, it's like, let's talk about the real issue. <laughs> let's talk about the elephant in the room, which you never could. And especially back then, I, I was 70s, but you know what I mean? So so then you get even more confused, right? So then you're an adult and you you... You bring these things up and they say, oh, it never happened. <laughs> so you're constantly invalidated. Like it's almost easier to get the crap beat out of you because at least you know. But that emotional stuff, boy, it's hard to, you know, because, you know, and then when, again, when you bring it up, it's always denied. So you're, you're, there's so much confusion. And I imagine that for you as well. Well, anyway, yeah, that was I, I about learned, eight questions, but, <laughs> you know, as a child, um, and I was the youngest in my family. I have an older sister. So, and the old saying, mm -hmm. you know, the crap rolls downhill. Sure enough, even in families. Um, but I witnessed yeah. my mother's, the impact of my father's emotional cruelty on my mother. And my mother drifted into deep emotional and mental um, dysfunction where... Yeah. She would basically just crawl in bed and stay in bed for days. Uh, and she was heavily medicated in and out of hospitals. Ultimately, as I mentioned in the book, she took her life. Mm. Um, and for so long, you know, it was like, well, you know, your mom was sick. No doubt she was right. sick. But she wasn't sick. It wasn't sickness. Sickness doesn't grow out of itself. Yeah. There, there is an instigating event or circumstance here. I, it, I believe today, and I understand today how the impact of my father's narcissism played into her. And you know, we hear so much about the term gaslighting now. I grew up witnessing it constantly, yeah. where mom was the crazy yeah. one. Okay, now she's the sick one. She's, a, you know, she's imagining this. She's just saying this. It's not true. Uh, when in reality, much of what she was saying, much of what she was pointing fingers at was true. Um, but my father, in his narcissistic genius, was, was a master at manipulating and con kind of controlling the viewfinder. And... Ugh. I bought into it. Um, it wasn't until... How would you not? Right. I mean, you're, when you're just, just a, a kid. kid. You go, you know? okay, 
And then when, when you're the one that sees it, you're the one that's gaslit. You're the one that's kicked out. You're the scapegoat. You know, that's how it is on my husband's side because you're breaking, you know, they call it like a kaleidoscope and you want to keep this sick balance going because it takes the spotlight off the abuser. And that's why everybody has their little roles. Yeah. You mentioned it so well. My mom, she was labeled as as the sick one. And so it was kind of the scapegoat for the family. Until her suicide. And then I became the scapegoat for the family. And you know what? I played into it. I totally played into it. My my drinking went from a weekend where I would go out and have a few drinks and chase the girls. You know, as as a man in my twenties, that's what I did. Worked all week and then earned my my Saturday night out to, you know. Well, enough said. After my mom's yeah, death, yeah. that drinking went from Saturday night to to most nights. And I, you know, I went, became tremendously dysfunctional. And I played right into it. And I took on all that, you know, I became now the target of all of that energy and accusation. And I played right into it. And until um, I got some help and healthy redirection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. And for those of you that are thinking, what is this family role and stuff? You know, we all families, you know, we're all born into a dysfunctional world and we all have kind of roles within the family sometimes. And they're not necessarily as authentic as we would like them to be. We get older, we kind of we kind of do what's called like an integration where we generally become like who we were meant to be, that sort of thing. In, In dysfunctional and addicted families, it's just that those roles are very rigid. You know, and everybody has a role because it's, it's, there's sort of rules in these abusive families. We're not really honest. We, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And I don't know if you ever read Robert Subby, Lost in the Shuffle. It's like the best book ever. And he talks about all the rules of the, of the codependent family. And it's, it's very funny, but very real as well. And so it's actually, it's, it's, it's a studied thing and you know there's just different roles we take on i was kind of the lost child and you know david saying that you know he was the scapegoat and you know and then you know his mother was before that and it sounds like the sister was the hero and and so they're just they're just roles that tend to be more rigid than the the normal family yeah, I, I guess you would say yeah. you know a healthy family is one that accepts the fact that there's need for growth. And there's right. room for growth. Right, yeah. There are set roles in the family. You know, dad is dad, mom is mom, kids are kids. There right. is kind of, you know, the hierarchy of older kid, younger kid, you know, and uh, the older kid beats up on the younger kid, but then at the same time, the older kid's going right. to, you know, protect the younger kid at school and father's, you know, um yeah. At the same time, in a healthy family, the parents can model to the children the fact that they're still learning. They're still yeah, growing. Yeah. They recognize themselves as they're, they're not masters of the universe. That they, are, yeah. that they are flawed. They're in need, in religious terms, they're in need of this ongoing, consistent movement of repentance um, there's something to learn. There's, there's great strength in being able to say, you know, I'm sorry, I should have done better. And I'm going to, and I'll try, yeah. I'll try to do better in the future as opposed to, well, you know, I'm sorry that you got your feelings hurt. You shouldn't be so sensitive. <laughs> Stop, Stop feeling that feeling. way. Your father and I don't That's know why right. you feel you that You know way. what? So, you know, and I heard uh, a lot. <laughs> You should not That's feel right. anything. <laughs> I don't want to hear yeah. it because you don't know, you don't appreciate how hard I work or that. Oh, and it's right. true. People, yeah. you know, children probably don't realize how hard their parents work. Sure. But yeah, yeah. The parent, a healthy parent realizes their kids are kids. Exactly. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. 
So kind of what was your moment of clarity? Maybe did you have a moment of clarity? Several. Well, maybe backing up a little bit, how did you get, so you get into recovery and what was that process like? And then was there sort of an aha moment mm-hmm. with, you know, cause you were miserable and sober. You're like a dry drunk, right? You're just, you're not happy. And then sort of understanding why all that was. Well, I don't think I ever could admit to myself how miserable I was until I got around some other people who freely admitted their misery. But they weren't slaves to their misery. They didn't even begrudge it. They They were freely communicating, hey, they've had a hard life and life may not be perfect, but they have this you know, this honest, hope-filled expectation for the future. And I first began to hear that at a very practical level, at a very honest level, in the 12-step meetings, AA meetings. Um, And I was in a treatment program. It was a long-term treatment program. But it was outpatient, so I I lived in my home. I worked my job, and I went to this place in the evenings Mm -hmm. where I sat in groups and I met with a counselor and one day, and I write about this in, in my fisherman book that my counselor challenged me on being a Christian. And this is what he said. He goes, okay, so tell me about what you believe about Jesus. Oh, okay. I know how to do that. I'd been hearing about Jesus and talking about Jesus my entire life. And I told him everything, and he listened very politely, kind of nodding his head. He, then he puts up his hand and says, no, stop. I don't want to hear anymore. And I go, oh, okay. You know, he goes, you know, you don't really believe that, do you? <laughs> I go, well, of course I do. He goes, no. No, you don't. And I was, at this point, I'm the guy, how in the, who is he to tell me that I don't believe in Jesus? I've I've been going to church my entire life. And he says to me, and he says very gently to me, he goes, you know, David, if you really believe what you said, you wouldn't be living the way you've been living. Mm. And I just was stunned at that. And I had no argument about that. There was no, I, I couldn't debate that with him. It was so true that what I had been claiming about Jesus and kind of reciting about Jesus right. had not given me inside what I needed to live a healthy, spirit-filled life. And I began to think about that. And I thought about that for weeks and months, and I I had picked up reading as a hobby. And by the way, I never read a book until I got sober, ever. Why would I read a book? Um, I've now authored more than four books, which this wow. is this is what happens in recovery. The things begin yeah, to happen yeah. in our life that we never ever thought would happen. I had become a reader. I noticed that when I was reading, I didn't feel miserable. And so since I wasn't drinking or doing drugs, I might as well be a reader because I didn't want to be miserable. And I I read different kinds of books, um, New Age books, psychology books, books on general spirituality. Um, I read the 12-step books, which I found very helpful. And then I picked up a Bible. I got a modern version of the Bible, the message. And I began reading um, scripture through the message. And I began to get in touch with these very pathetic people in scripture that the preachers kind of mentioned. But they didn't really talk about the humanity of these people. Like the blind man, the leper, Mm -hmm. the paralyzed man. The woman caught in adultery. Uh, you know, these are the people I'm going, you know, these are like my brothers and sisters here. I can relate with every one of them. 
Yeah. And I saw how these people related with Jesus and how Jesus related with them. And I looked at that as I continue to read this. I was reading and then I get into Romans and I'm reading Romans. And I come across Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, you know, I do these terrible things that I don't want to do. And I don't do what I know I should do. And at this point, I'm, I'm really paying attention here because it's like it's got Paul's yeah, telling my yeah. story. And he says, you know, who's going to, you know, who's going to free me from this life that I, you know, this part of me that's powerless and out of control. And as I'm reading that, I'm going, oh, my gosh, this is this is like a I could have written this even though I don't know how to write this. And then I turned the page and, and read Romans 8, 1. He said, but those for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. And I read that, yeah. and, I, and I remember sitting back in my chair, Jody, going, oh, my gosh, I'm a Christian. It wasn't until I found a solidarity and someone who would, who would identify with me in my brokenness and in my sin, my addictions, that I was be, that I was able to grasp and understand what it meant to have a savior that was not that would not condemn me. There was that dynamic that I saw in Scripture for the first time, which really is an ongoing um, dynamic that plays out for me in my recovery yeah. relationships. Um, as a recovering man today, I am deeply, I, I am embedded in deep integrated relationships and friendships with people who are also in recovery. And we make it a, I make it a point to speak with one or more of them every day. And we talk about how we're doing and we're talking about our failures and we talk about our, and, and in so doing, we find hope not only for, you know, we find hope for ourselves. Um, so forgive me for kind of being, you, you know, you, I hope I haven't no. kind of droned on too long about this, but that's how it happened for me. And that process, yeah, no, yeah, that process continues to play out. 25 years later, that process is still playing out. Mm. Yeah, it's a process of sanctification, as they call it. You know, it's it's a daily, it's like peeling back the layers of an onion, as they say, you know, um, and we're, we're never there until we're in heaven, right? I mean, then we're there. So, but um, no, I love that because you, you grew up in the church, but you never knew Jesus. And I think that's how it's... It's even difficult, more difficult, I think, for people that were raised in the church to have that relationship. See, I was saved later. And so I could accept the fact that, you know, people in my family were that way. But then, you know, I got saved when I was 28. And so it was all about that. Oh, my gosh, the Bible and learning what you learned and the personal relationship. But a lot of times the people that were raised in church, I mean, they, they had started in church when they were four or five. And so it was just sort of this thing that they did every day and, and you know you thought you thought you knew well you know and really for know. a long time I or for a quite a while I when I would think back to my upbringing and my and I would resent it and I would want to find fault with it at this right, point I don't right. I don't find a lot of fault in it um the yeah the teaching that I got was very much like the framing of a house. It's, it's, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. a basic structure of understanding and information. It doesn't, it doesn't get fully built out and become a home and, until there's the experience where the person finds themselves um, at the foot of the cross, as we say. Right. And um, so, you know, the problems I had in development were really more the it, it was more a result of the trauma and the dysfunction of a of a of a family ruled by a narcissist 
it wasn't a fault of the church. Um, and the church as a social structure and as a community back then was just not equipped. Because um, again, we're talking about the 60s and the 70s where there was no conversation about yeah. this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think the church and the church as a community, I mean, it ta it's taking its lumps. And believe me, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make any excuses for churches and for church leaders who get caught, figuratively speaking, caught with their pants down. Okay, I mean, you know, right. it's, the circumstances, the consequences are just going to be what they are. At the same time, the child raised in a church versus a child not raised in a church, at some point in time, they're going to have to look at themselves in the mirror and say, God, I need you. And it's interesting that it's very hard for people to say, God, I need you, until they've taken a good, hard, honest look at themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that uh, thing that John Calvin, you know, says, you can't right. know God until you know yourself. You can't know yourself right. until you know God, because it's God that shows us right. who we are. Like, I remember I had left this Dr. Henry Cloud seminar, you know, how to find a date worth keeping. And, you know, I was so hungover. I'm popping breath mints. I didn't even want to go. I'm stinking. I had free tickets, you know, because I was in radio. And literally, God said to me, and I'm not one that hears voices, but at some point after that, you know, he was talking about how two whole people make two people, but two half people consume each other and tear each other apart, you know, and and... I remember after that, hearing him say, you know, you're the problem. You are the problem with your life. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, God wouldn't speak like that. But he did. <laughs> you know, and it was just such a, like, it was like, God, I am the problem. But that's kind of where the journey of recovery started. And then of just realizing that God's like, you know, the reason there's all those stories about all those broken people is that's who we are. He's like, he's like, come to me with all your crap. You know, I had so many demons. I was like, God, why do I have all these demons? And, you know, and, and the minute, you know, we start to get honest, right? And we're on the floor <laughs> in the fetal position. He's like, okay, cool, cool. Now we can go somewhere, but right, but it's that right. honesty. And it's hard to get there especially for you when you're raised with people that aren't honest, right? They, they can't, they can't go there and you got to learn to go there. And that's where God wants us to go as a whole nother level, you know? Well, I think, I think one of the misguided consequences of a religious led um, experience is that it teaches people that, okay, here is the answer. If you get this, then you've checked the box and you got the answer. And yeah. I remember at five years old being asked, hey, don't you want to give your heart to Jesus so that when you die, you know you're going to go to heaven because you're a sinner. And if you don't say this prayer, you're going to go to hell. You know, of course, at five years old, I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, I, you know, I guess yeah, so. so. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to go to hell. Um, right, right. And, uh, that once you did that, boom, you're in, you got your ticket punched and, yeah. and you're good to go. No more questions. Uh, you know, this is it. This is the answer. And, um, we're here today. I mean, it's like, oh, you don't need this. You don't need that. You just need Jesus. Okay. Well, what the heck does that mean? And Jesus, what does he say? You know, when we look at the at the gospel records, he is always inviting people to do what? Follow me. It's always yeah. about a journey. Yeah. It's always, it's not about, okay, so we're just going to sit here for the rest of our life and just be you and me. No, yeah. it's not. It's this journey of discovery and growth. And there's going to be, you know, we're going to get blisters along the way and we're going to feel rocks in our shoes and. Um, yeah. but Jesus saying, Hey, follow me. So, um, yeah. it's that partner journey. That's where we start to find things. And I like to use the word discover. 
So instead of mm-hmm. knowing that I have the answer, it's like, what is it that I will discover? What is it that God will reveal? Yeah. And, and that really is the adventure of the spiritual journey. Yeah. And it's a long process. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. There are a few people I've known that have been struck sober like magic wand. That didn't that didn't happen to me, you know, and and generally speaking, right, we do live in a fallen world. It's like a guy that kills someone. He may accept Christ, but he's probably still going to have to spend time in prison. So if we've been raised with trauma and dysfunction, it's going to take some time to get better. It doesn't, you know, even if God strikes you sober, you still have a journey of dealing with all those underlying issues. Uh-huh. And so, of course, Jesus is enough, but but because of the sin in the world and the fallen world and our biology and all the, the things, we aren't immediately cured. I don't know why that is. I wish it was different. I think God could do it if he wanted, but he doesn't. Maybe it's preparing us for heaven. I don't know. But that's just, that's my perspective and that's what I've seen. And so it's that hard balance in church because you want to say, yeah, Jesus is enough, but there's so much more to it. And then and then it's, it's tricky because, you know, yes, he is enough, but we still have to work through all this goo, you know? It's just the way it is, right? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I think people... In, in kind of our industrialized, Americanized, commercialized religious worlds that we have, um, it's so easy to offer Jesus as a one-time fix and come to yeah. the service, you know, sing the song, buy the album, buy the book, take the course, whatever it is, boom, and you're good to go. And people love I think, and it really kind of growing out of our sense of exhaustion and our sense of, of uh, you know, because the world can be a place where we get weary and we get tired, where we say, okay, so yeah. boom, um, I can do this and then it's all done and I've arrived. <laughs> the yeah. arrival is in the relationship. Yeah. And from there, the human experience in this world is to allow that relationship to begin to kind of filter and work its way into the, all of these areas of our life and these areas of our life that w- will create conflict and resistance. I almost think of it like the way water works underground. Um, you know, in California, last year, we came out of a, a long, long drought where we, we had great rains and for, for we had more than average rains for about a year. And what really made the difference is as the rains soaked into the ground and replenished the groundwater that had been evaporated or had been utilized and drained off and pumped out of the ground over the last 10 years of drought. I think that's how the spiritual experience is is we come to Jesus and we have we have time with Jesus that we do through scripture and spiritual disciplines and time and fellowship. And also the 12 step yeah. process in recovery is a great discipline in these areas mm-hmm. where this allows yeah. you know the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and then from there it begins to do this process of working its way in this kind of subterranean way into these other areas of our life where yes, it meets, it meets resistance and conflict. And we don't always see it at this level of that's easily observed, but it plays out over time. And, um, you know, when I was five years sober, I thought I had the perfect life. I really did. (laughs) Had a beautiful home near the beach, had some money in the bank a business. I was sober. I was happy. I was running every day and exercising, you know, cause I'm young. I still, <laughs> I still jog and exercise every day, but it's not so much fun anymore. I'm getting older. Right, um, right. I didn't know that in my future, I would have, I would suffer tremendously in the great recession. 
and I would lose my business and my income. I would have to sell my house. And I got to the point where I lived for several years having to wonder how I was going to pay rent every month and how I was going to make decisions between groceries or gas for the car. Fast forward a few more years, I realized how God was using those difficult, hard, hard painful circumstances to prepare me to do things like write some good books and be able to speak from a position and of, of this level of experience that I never would have had if it had just been I got sober and everything was life and everything in life was successful after that because that's the easy right. sell. We hear yeah. it in church. Yeah. We hear it in recovery meetings. Well, I got sober and everything about my life got better, and that was true. When I, I mean, getting sober for me was walking through a doorway where goodness and happiness became possible. But as God and his providence worked in my life, and as I learned to cooperate with that, I learned to, be, to see the world differently and become a different kind of man where I think that the impact of this little life of David Zaylor is going to be more helpful to more people. And that's of greater value than anything more than a house near the beach or a business could ever be. Well, you kind of got smaller and God yeah. got bigger. You know, that's what, that's what I like yeah. to say. If, if God becomes bigger than, you know, God's got to become bigger than right. your problems. And, you know, what now you can say, look, I went through all of this and then through it all, I didn't have to drink. Right. <laughs> you know, I lost my brother in 15 to his addiction. I didn't have to drink. Right? All these things happen. I didn't have right. to drink and I didn't, you know, and I think for me, and I don't know about you, and we'll kind of end on this note, and I also want to hear about your books. Two of the, the saving factors for me, in addition to, I, I got saved first and then got sober. But the biggest things were just the, the acceptance, which was huge, and the, and the gratitude. And without those two things, I don't think I would have made it. And when I see people in recovery that you can just see like they're a ticking time bomb because the gratitude is gone. The anger, the resentment starts to pop up. And, you know, I used to see this with my brother and you know, my mom would call, Oh, you know, he's doing really well. And I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> it's TikTok, TikTok, you know? Um, but that gratitude and then just the acceptance piece. And that's, that's the hard part. You know, that's the hard part when you're, 51 and you're still struggling with your issues and you're looking around going seeing someone 25 that's got it all figured out and it just feels like it's right. not fair right it wasn't fair that you were abused it wasn't fair but then just accepting leaning on god and just accepting mm -hmm. that i can't change mm -hmm. it you can't change the past you can't there's nothing you can do about that <laughs> you know and so when you can be grateful and just accept it that's, I feel like, where so much of that healing comes from, you know? You've said it beautifully, Jody. And at some point, I began to realize that to the degree that I was unaccepting of my own life and unaccepting of the mm -hmm. history that is to the degree that I was my own problem. I was the one standing in the way of my own freedom. Now, this didn't mean that I didn't need to make changes. I, you know, <laughs> I just made a joke with a friend of mine that, I, I mean, here we are on January 2nd. And I joked with him. I said, hey, I haven't been to McDonald's this year. And he and I both, <laughs> yeah, I both really laughed am. because Woo. I've had this bad habit of getting up at 4.30 in the morning, go run five miles, and then go to McDonald's for breakfast. Right. Just exactly. under everything you Talk did. About what? Like you get hungry after exactly. jogging. <laughs> um, no one, you know, no, that's not going to change until I change that behavior. But also, right, I had to change right. my attitude. 
you know, and this actually goes back to something I write about in Fisherman. In fact, there's a moment here. Gosh. You know, writing, writing Death of a Fisherman was not my idea. My friend Joey O'Connor suggested it. I told him, I said, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. And I changed the subject. <laughs> Six months later, I found myself writing some, some little essays and I realized, oh my gosh, I think I have stumbled on and accidentally on purpose begun to write the book that Joey suggested. Yeah. And yeah. as I'm writing one day, I wrote this. I write to the reader. And I said, look, I need to admit to you, the reader, what you already know. I've been writing about my father as if I'm holding a knife to his throat, demanding that he go back in time and change things that he did wrong. Right. I'm holding my father responsible for things that he could never change, and he's also dead. He's dead. Yeah. I'm the only one alive. I'm the only one that can make any changes. That writing for me took me to a new level of acceptance of, of really making peace with the past. That was what opened up the door for me to make changes in my future. And that has played out for me in repeated scenarios on repeated subjects it had it played out with how i came to see my mother's suicide how i had my relationship with my father which this was work done after he died i've also had to make come to terms with my own acceptance about you know the the terrible choices i made when i was in the years of my drinking and drug use i i suffered tremendous loss and I just had to make peace with that. But it was making peace with that that freed me up to go live a better way in the future. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's that peace, acceptance, the forgiveness piece. I heard a pastor once who was talking about forgiveness where it's basically saying, hey, you know, David, you owe me. You owe me A, B, C, D, and E. And then in the end, he said, but you know, if they, if they repaid it, would it ever be enough? And it was like, oh. No, it wouldn't. So that's what forgiveness is. It's like, it's like everything I've done. It's like, hey, God, you know, forgive me, but, you know, I could never change it or fix it, you know. So, well, David, thank you so much for being here, for sharing your inspiration, your story, your expertise, all those sorts of things. Tell people um, your books, information, how they can connect with that, with you, uh, any, any uh, contact information that you want to put out there. Well, they can reach me through um, the website of the nonprofit operationintegrity.org. And awesome. uh, uh, that's, the, uh, that's the banner that I basically work from, both as, you know, when I do counseling work or in my coaching and, and, and teaching of, of ministry leaders. Uh, so they can reach me there, operationintegrity.org. My books are all av available through all the booksellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Death of a Fisherman. Forgive me. I conveniently have them all here. Um, this is the book that people are asking about most often now. Mm -hmm. I'm very proud of it. That was the book that it wasn't my idea. <laughs> I'm glad I wrote it, but boy, during the process, I was going, gosh, I'm, I'm not sure if I really want to do this. And uh, yeah. the Our Journey Home book, this is uh, Our Journey Home, Insights and Inspiration for, Christ, for Christian 12-Step Recovery. It's a multi-purpose nice. um, addiction recovery book nice. for Christians. And then my first book, which is actually, I just did a, um, a rewrite and brushed it up is When Lost Men Come Home and An Inspired Journey to Sexual Integrity. This was my first book that I wrote uh, first back in 2006. And this last wow. year, I felt the need to go back through and, uh, you know, add a little spit and polish to it. And um, there's yeah. some other books that I've written there that, are, that they'll see online. But those are the three that people ask about. 
Awesome. Thank you well, thank so you. much. Thanks thank for preparing. Thanks and for thank you for your listeners. Jody, thank you. I hope you'll have me on again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to Genuine Life Recovery, playing on your favorite app or on my website at jodystevens.org. It's J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, jodystevens.org. There you can check out my podcast, blog, recovery coaching info, speaking, and more. Check it out.